0: excited about this piece of imagination and healing and visioning a new future and cancel culture and
1: all these themes yeah yeah would you like to give um, just a very brief overview of where you sense our conversation might go or what themes feel alive at the start of it and then just to, to lay the groundwork a bit
0: yeah so Four years ago, I met and trained with Dick Schwartz, who was one of the rediscoverers of IFS trauma healing. And as I've gone deeper into collective trauma, generational trauma, legacy burdens, which are white supremacy and materialism and human supremacy and patriarchy, I've just been whole new my nervous system has been opening up about what are the what are some of the root causes of how we keep replaying disaster capitalism and as we see right now in this present moment, war and mass extinction, and where are the root causes that can actually shift of us individually to actually start living into embodying the world we want to see but not out of shoulds not out of guilt not out of shame not out of reactivity but really out of a space inside of us that is a full yes that it's there's nothing else we would want to do besides being part of collective liberation and how, how how do we help heal our nervous system and help heal our trauma and to help do that collectively and move energy to those cultures that are literally being bombed in the moment and don't even have a moment to take a breath how do we do that that's that's the question i'm excited to lean into with the the collective liberation and trauma healing and
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just feel really <laughs> privileged to be able to have this conversation with you and the timing of it. Yeah, it feels like it's it's hitting my heart at a really potent moment. So um where do we begin?
0: Yeah. I want to begin with this framing of how trauma. We often think of it as our. I think our current frame is trauma is life trauma. We were neglected. We were physically abused. We lost someone in a car accident or cancer, and this is a very important part of of trauma healing we have our life experience when i think we just focus on that in the west especially we miss these other areas that we're being constantly traumatized by all these systems of what what are called legacy burdens or cultural burdens individualism materialism patriarchy racism colonization, classism, enemy identity that happens when we're traumatized. Enemy identity leads to war and genocide in the industrial prison complex. And then also going to the generational, that epigenetics is showing that all the trauma of my ancestors lives in me. My dad who woke up screaming because he was the front line in the Vietnam War and how that lives in my body what he experienced um, and they're finding that they can see it in the DNA and epigenetics even currently what we see happening the heartbreaking moment as you mentioned the hospital just being bombed and people the casualty of war is all the civilians are traumatized and killed and because of resources and power and all these things that happen when we have a traumatized self and a traumatized culture, how we, it, it's just hard. Like with cancel culture, how do we have a dialogue about this root cause and be curious without jumping to whatever on any end of the spectrum, talking about Palestine and Israel, the traps are, if I become curious about what's happening, I'm, anti Semitic or I'm I am against the Muslim culture like there's so many traps to have dialogue but if we look at collective trauma from the Holocaust for example we can see that whatever hasn't been healed from that which was again an incredibly heartbreaking moment in history of genocide that those who did not heal we know trauma restricts our ability to see clearly. And in all trauma lenses I've read um, across the board say that it restricts our ability to see clearly, to see what's happening clearly, to see other people. We often are activated from something in the past, so we often see fear, we see danger when a lot of times it isn't there. And so when we don't heal this trauma, again, it lives in us individually and collectively in It's end oppression, what we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine and what we're seeing right now in Palestine and Israel. And that fear of genocide unhealed leads to the expression of we'll do anything, not face that again, and that anything becomes paradoxically war and genocide. And so we're in this huge loop, and when we I think when we can't hold the complexity, we're destined for endless war. Again, I realize the complexity. I'm sitting in here at the possibility lines in Maine, and these statements are really easy to make when you're in a safe place. And so I also have to hold that if I wasn't leaning in with people who are doing front lines work in El Salvador and working with people front lines work in Afghanistan and really wrestling with the people in the cauldron of oppression and the cauldron of genocide and the cauldron of trauma, I, I wouldn't be speaking right now because it would be someone speaking about theory, which I think is problematic and delegitimizes the horror people are facing in this moment so i just enter the conversation knowing it's a complex one from my positionality and from who i'm working with and what we're wrestling with yeah
1: yeah in some ways it feels like a societal koan it's like the metaphor that was arising is how do we how how can we be dry when we're swimming in the ocean. You know, it's like it feels like it's almost impossible to get out of that loop. And yet there are historical, you know, there are historical precedents for when that loop was broken. And so there are possibilities (laughs) to talk about the possibility now podcast. But yeah, I guess I'm wondering it's funny because I want to ask a question about like what can we do to break the loop and I'm sure that's a valid question but it almost feels like there's something that needs to happen before that question is asked which is just being with the awareness that there is a loop and being able to see it and maybe being able to see it play internally in our own psyche and then collectively in our own family and social systems locally and then seeing it be, be played out you know internationally or globally and yeah maybe that there's something in just the the being with the seeing of it that is the first step before any sort of like process of trying to move through it or out of it can even really be spoken to
0: that yeah beautifully said cuz what i was thinking of how to be with it is what I'm learning as I'm getting my level one training in IFS and and really been doing grief tending for years and years. I'm finding that there's a distinction between grief and trauma. So when you first called, you just found out about the horrific bombing of the hospital. And this is grief. Grief is something different than trauma. in in what people are discovering what I'm finding in my own body and doing grief-tending in myself and others is that grief is a natural response when we love something deeply and it's harmed or we lose it. Be a person we love, culture, Um, and grief is as natural as pooping or peeing uh, as Martin Prechtel talks about in The Smell of Rain on Dust. is like the first thing a baby does is cry. Our first act out of the womb is to grieve. Almost every baby cries cross-cultural because you're in this womb hearing your mom's heartbeat. You're in this belly. It's, you're swimming in this amazing ocean. And then all of a sudden you're squeezed through this portal and you come out on the other side and you don't know what's happening so the first natural act is to grieve that what you had you lost and if you don't grieve you can't be present for the next step hmm. in being alive as a human right now in the moment so it's just interesting that the first act we have as a human being out of the womb is grief dying baby it's so natural and then later if all goes well you drink the breast milk, and then you pee and poop, and it's all good. If you didn't grieve from the beginning, grief that's not composted and moved through our body ends up becoming anxiety, depression, fear, disassociation, uh, gets stuck. Just like if we didn't poop, eventually there'd be a problem and so I think when we hear these things, oh, we just have to grief. I just attended some community grief circles last week and were on a fire just with snot running down their nose, crying about all of these things that are happening and to just be together crying about the war right now in the Middle East and the war. Wars everywhere. There's wars in Africa. There's war in the assault on the earth and all all that's happening but there's healing that happens on the other side of grief and Joanna Macy's work we see after we grieve we reconnect like when there's outrageous loss it takes outrageous courage to grieve so to to actually choose to grieve at this time and be human on the earth means you're opening up to a lot of uncomfortable movement and but on the other side of that, you are reattaching to your love for that culture, that place, uh, people who have been oppressed or being killed systematically. You reattach to the love. If you don't grieve, you shut down. And it also is a courageous act to love when we know what we love we're going to lose, whether it's a tree or a child. So there's this first step, I think, is, is grief as a healthy, beautiful piece. And I know I've talked about grief in another interview. but I think right now it's so important to make a distinction between grief and trauma. Again, grief being just natural. And on the other side of it, we're usually on the other side of my grief circles without prompting people. I see people saying, I just gotta get there to the front lines. What's happening in Atlanta right now deforestation and the harm created to the black community, or I just have to go be a human shield, like some of my friends who have spent time um, working for peace, trying to work for peace between Israel and Palestine, or being human shields in Palestine to protect civilians, and um, the deep listening project that happened between those two countries. Or to see that when polled right now, a majority of people... In these countries facing war, are not wanting the war. When the second Iraq war happened, we saw uprising around the planet like we've never seen. That the majority are saying no. How do we find another way? So when we watch the news, I think this is an important piece of domination system, is that's intentionally and actively showing helplessness, hopelessness inevitability, inevitability, impossibility, doubt, cynicism, there's no future but harm in this story when we turn on the news, whether it's liberal or conservative, however we want to call it. And so there's a balance between being aware that heartbreak is happening right now. I mean, right now, there's a war across, the many wars across the planet that are real and affecting me because I'm interconnected. And right now, in Maine. A white Mainer will live to age 78. And if you're a Wabanaki, one of the five tribes in Maine, your life expectancy is 48. It's like, I need to know that information. But information in a way similar to grief that I can com- compost it to action, I think the constant streaming of horrific news actually shuts down our system. Mm-hmm. And we actually start to feel like it's inevitable because we're being traumatized by all of these things. It's inevitable. There's no future when we're in trauma. All we can see is that there's going to be an unending future of harm. All we can see in this moment for the future is what's happening in this moment because trauma restricts our ability to see. So just to know that, that yes, we need to know what's happening in the world is essential. And how we get that information and how we process it is crucial. So I'm not saying we're not aware of what's happening in the world, but the how slowing down to grieve the the news coming from Israel and the news coming from Palestine to grieve and to process it together as a community to move towards something different Mm -hmm. and something practical. Yes, Sarah and I are war tax resistors. Well, there's not that many in the U.S. And it's true that the U.S., Obama and Biden, have been the largest military contracts in history to Israel. So then we're weaponizing the world, which inevitably leads to what we see, as we are in Ukraine, leads to constant war. So how do we imagine? You have to start to imagine. What if the whole world just said, no, we're not actually going to, pay the taxes to keep this war economy going. That's profit-driven. And when it's profit-driven, unconsciously or consciously, those systems never want it to stop. So again, whenever we bring capitalism in, it exasperates enemy identity, colonization, ecocide, hatred, because when you have a profit-driven healthcare system, you, your business models, you don't want people to heal. When the biggest profits in the U.S. is selling weapons, our economy is needing that, then there'd be a, a reason to have war continue. So again, it's not the cause of war, but exasperates the enemy identity that starts it all. So here we are in this conundrum, but starting with grief, I think, is a really beautiful place to start to make sure our heart is remembering we're interconnected. And everyone who's being killed right now is part of our family. As Vincent Harding says, who was a wonderful black leader of the civil rights movement, says, aren't they all our children? Like collective liberation, like Audrey Lord saying, like without community there's no liberation, like till we claim everything is our children, we'll never take the action needed for the more beautiful world, as Eisenstein says, we know our heart knows is possible.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a curiosity around grief. You know, one of the so-called stages of grief is anger. And it feels like there's an important distinction when those feelings of anger come up as part of the grief process where one can act on that anger. And that can sometimes look like revenge or an eye for an eye. Um, and then there's the way in which one can act from anger as a form of creating healthy boundaries and creating, um, taking a stand for justice. And, and it feels like such a fine line and sometimes different perspectives will see the same action and label it differently depending on their worldview or their cultural, you know, orientation And one thing that I was just reflecting on is like, you know, I'm not I'm not quite saying this in a literal way. I don't know if this would quite be practical, but even just metaphorically, if something like the US Congress um or any government passed legislation where it imposed, like when there's a say a terrorist attack on the US, there it would impose a 30-day grief moratorium where before any actions on um, against or in retaliation against a terrorist, there first needs to be just a collective pause and a collective process of being with grief and being with the anger without needing to necessarily act on it that might um, go into like the deepest and darkest corners of the human psyche and just sort of exacerbate <clears throat> the, the core seeds that are fueling the whole cycle. And so maybe there could be a process in which there's some way to acutely, you know, address the acute security challenges that might be in place, like fortifying the border in Israel and Palestine, making sure that more Hamas fighters don't come into Israel, but not necessarily acting out against the other side until there's some sort of collective grief process that, that the society is able to go through and then act from that place of not necessarily being in the height of the peak emotions that grief where grief can kind of become all consuming. And I know for me, sometimes I sort of just like lose myself in the grief um, in a way that feels really healthy when it can be held maybe in community, because then I can just like allow myself to fully be in it. Uh, But I also know that I'm not going to necessarily act on that because there's people around me that can help contain the emotions and to, create a sense of safety and trust in, in myself and in the pr- and in the grieving process itself.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of important layers to what you shared. As One, grief has always been a collective practice. So in IFS, they point out the legacy burden of individualism. We have the rates of extreme loneliness are off the charts in the Western world. And grief is seen as, for some cultures, the most intimate Act when we are together as community. So, so often if we do grief alone, it's really hard to metabolize the grief. Other, amazing with the mirror neurons and everything that's happening in our vagus nerve. There's just like a collective. Even when you watch someone move grief, there's grief moving in your body because the mirror neurons are playing out what you're seeing, and so it's super powerful. So, how do we do that together? What you said about anger is so important. I'm just reading an article about awe yeah. and how awe heals and awe actually creates humility. And it's fascinating that in these experiments, there's a new book that came out. I, I, I'm just reading the article, so I don't remember the author, but they're finding someone is exposed to awe and another control group isn't. When they draw themselves after, they always draw themselves much smaller on the page they're actually size is across the board, smaller, and then they show landscape or other animals or other people. And when you don't have an awe experience, you take up the whole page. Mm. So awe kind of reminds us how massive the universe is or how interconnected we are. But in the same article, they talked about the single indicator of a, of a successful social movement is the amount of collective anger shared. You know, there's so many Why Civil Disobedience Works is a wonderful book looking at like 250 revolutions and the complexity of strategy of were they violent revolutions, nonviolent revolutions, often they're a fusion of both, where they militant. And I think that is important, that anger activates in canvas in a lot of these people who are the Center for Nonviolence. I don't remember the acronym, but folks who are part of the uprising in Serbia that anger activates action. We saw that after George Floyd was publicly murdered. And the important part that they find is anger anger activates, but vision sustains. So this vision of a new future is needed because then anger can easily just become the world we don't want. Violence, hatred, I like this quote by Oct- Octavia Butler from the Parable of the Talents. I want I want it to give us a focus, a goal, something big enough, complex enough, difficult enough, and in the end, radical enough to make us become more than we ever have been. I think this combination, as they, they talk about in Radical Love, we... No one is ever exiled. We have a handout for them, and the anger is directed at the act. Martin Luther King talked about this and so many others. Is like, how do we, you know, the the public murder of so many black bodies in this country? Yes, the individual officer is accountable, but if we just focus on the officer, we're missing a much wider legacy burden of white supremacy that leads to the othering and othering leads to the extreme level to be able to kill another person or rape another person. The last thing that's really alive in me is Dominic Barter was just visiting here for a week who does work at Favelas and in Brazil, amazing team there. Healing of the favelas is like 20% of Rio de Janeiro. There's no state control of that area. So they experimented with restorative circles, how to heal from violent crimes, because calling the police into the favelas often meant someone was going to be killed. I've been doing this for 30 years, and the challenge of when the conflict escalates to violence that's when we haven't addressed the conflict. And once the violence is happening, it's, it can be very difficult to have that moment of pause because our fight and flight response is triggered. We wanna make sure no one else killed on either side and then it escalates to more and more violence, which then escalates to more and more violence. We see this loop. So the key that Dominic talks about is we have, if we avoid conflict, it's the most dangerous thing we can do because then it builds up and then the expression ends up turning from conflict to violence, which is very different than how the folks doing this amazing work in Brazil are defining conflict. Conflict, an example they give us, if, if we're Tucker, let's say you and I are going into the co-op and we've locked up our bikes and then I'm like, Hey, where's the, where's the bike key, Tucker? And you're like, I don't know. And I'm like, you always lose it. What starts happening is when we start to disconnect from each other, we are energetically far away from each other. So we start yelling. So I start yelling and then you start yelling. And the more we move, the more we're disconnected, all of a sudden I can all of a sudden throw something at you from the shelf. And then we see violence start to happen. But when we, When we slow down to engage conflict before it erupts to that level, that would require all of us across the world are wrestling and acting to change these issues now. When we start wrestling with them now, colonization, white supremacy, we are moving into a future that has less of this conflict if we're healing it and less chance of there being the violence that comes when we avoid and we're in a we're in a cognitive dissonance we are culturally avoiding that we participate in war the wars that are happening right now are because of the united states gets 30 percent of all resources in the world and one-twentieth of the population war is often lack of land access to resource control paying war economy, anyone who's paying their taxes, half of it is going to fund weaponry all over the world. So it's, again, it's important not to have a shame response to this, but when we just feel like we're disconnected and we're just like, oh, that's happening over there, opposed to the empowerment I feel that happens, it says, I am complicit with this happening over there in Israel, Palestine. And therefore... Because of collective liberation, I start acting now so the future doesn't have to require war in the future. And what does that mean? It's gonna look different for each person. But we start building capacity on the personal level, community level, cultural level. We'll build healthy culture. That's one step. How do we build culture that doesn't require resources from the Middle East like oil that leads to all kinds of tensions? And how do we also start transforming and dismantling oppressive systems in the culture? Disrupting that part of like, oh, actually all was good until this war broke out, or all was good until the Exxon Valdez dumped all this oil into the Alaskan coast. So when we realize that actually silence isn't the same as peace, I think we're so silent that all of a sudden we're showing over and over again that we are not in alignment. And when our agreements aren't working, then we see violence, we see war. I think there's a whole nother reframe that we are traumatized by this and we're constantly traumatized by all these systems and that we need to take empowered accountability, act on it in the moment to decrease the very conditions that are leading to all of this violence. It's a big, beautiful responsibility if we were really born here to be love and to have collective liberation. Yeah.
1: Hmm. How does one be with the truth of the perspective and the experience, more importantly, that trauma is happening in, you know, like everywhere in all of our systems and on the land that we're a part of um, in our cultural conditioning? And in our own interpersonal you know life experiences, how do we be with that all and then not also at the same time fall into sort of a victim mentality that can perpetuate the trauma by kind of, again acting from a place of um of uh of outrage or a place of um revenge and, it feels like a very delicate balance. And another thing I was thinking about is how can we be with the truth of the systemic violence that is enacted by different systems and different um, groups without necessarily taking that too far, where it becomes a sense of like all Israelis are evil or all Muslims are, you know this or that. and. It feels like such a fine line between recognizing the collective responsibility that some people or some systems have without also not just blanketing uh, a new label onto an entire thing where there's actually some individuality responsibility that is differentiated from the collective or at least can be differentiated as a way of being with the nuance and the complexity of all of these various interweaving realities that lead to each and every moment.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's it's so important to realize that we replay domination when we are full of self-hatred, when we allow judgment, when we want to seek revenge, when we resent, um so we have to have a lot of compassion and curiosity uh we have to they're finding when we when we calm our nervous system through somatics trauma healing, through nature connection that what naturally arises is already in us um uh, working with people who experience incredible trauma and these are friends who are working in El Salvador and other places that they see once uh, there is a space in a safe space to heal that what starts to happen is confidence, compassion, curiosity, clarity. All these things arise. We don't have to work so hard to get them. We just have to, as, as Rumi says, like, find the blocks that are keeping us from this love flowing. And when we are getting caught up in the spinner of overwhelm whatever's happening in the world, someone shut down and overwhelmed is not necessarily going to support a shift away from the disaster happening, the unraveling happening planetary to all people and all species. So yeah, so this is an important question. As we started to do this trauma healing, what, our next question was, okay, we're able to do this. Who's not? So by being curious, it led us to the next question. And so one of my coworkers who works for Nuevo Esperanza was like, we need to bring it to El Salvador, which is also, right now, they have the largest prisons per capita prison system just built in the Americas. One out of five youth is being thrown into jail. If they have any connection, whether they're helping to heal the gangs or not. So there's a, one of the worst situations in El Salvador since the Civil War. And so there's so much. How do we track it all? You know, the, we often track what's in the frontline news, but there's so much not being reported. So we're making sure to have therapists from Spain sit weekly with frontline people in El Salvador and actually going to El Salvador to offer these trainings in the gift outside of capitalism, giving our time to sit with people who had to flee Afghanistan and other things. So the first question is, yes, trauma healing. The second important question is, who's in the front lines who doesn't have access? Indigenous communities and everything else so that they can keep their nervous system regulated and access that curiosity and clarity for action that will stop the harm. I mean, the two areas I think we're leaning into is how with our one life in our community and our culture can we increase healing, decrease harm? I like that frame because when we talk about saving someone or saving the planet, I think we need awe to realize we're just one piece of this huge, immense planet, and this planet is one piece of trillions of planets. But when we realize like our goal is to increase healing and decrease harm, in ways that are meaningful to ourselves and other people and other species, then we're, I think that map becomes really exciting, but we have to be really honest. uh, As you're saying, like, let's learn our capacity, claim your areas of strength, giftedness, vocation, and claim your areas of unskillfulness, fear, trauma, doubt, begin healing the areas and begin growing the capacity of your already existing strengths and point them in a direction of collective liberation. Not for our own gain, our own hurt hoarding, our own protection. So that takes a lot of community to both hold. When we look at our limitations, instead of going to shame or self-hatred, we can be curious and be like, oh, when I tap into the heartbreak of what's happening with the Wabanaki, I totally shut down. Okay, let's not make it a problem. How do I grow my capacity so when I get this heartbreaking news, I can actually take it in and hold it collectively with the recipients of that harm? And, you know, we hear words like white fragility that we we often can get overwhelmed and and react when we're listening to the real-life experiences of people who are black and brown or indigenous in the U.S., so we just grow our capacity. Grief work grows our capacity. Somatics, trauma healing, connection, trust. So all of a sudden, it's like, if we look at world transformation as a marathon, I've been running marathons for 30 years and you just joined me, Tucker. You're gonna have a hell of a time because on mile one, you're gonna be sucking air, you're gonna get blisters, and you're gonna be like, don't leave me. And I'm gonna be like, if the marathon, is the metaphor for collective liberation. I have a choice. Do I stay with Tucker while all these other people are suffering? Or, well, in complexity, there's no duality. I can say, hey, Tucker, guess what? I'm going to keep running forward to block the pipeline at line three or to move resources to the Wabanaki for their own collective liberations. And we got a team here that's going to help you prepare for the marathon because you're actually harming yourself and the collective By trying to run with me, because I've built my capacity, you're harming your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, your spiritual health. So when we react to an emergency, we we overcompensate, and then we see what happens is the activist that has the enemy identity. They're the problem. Um, And then we start division, and and then once we have division, all the worst atrocities can happen if we support each other, but you need to be courageous enough to say, I can't run this marathon right now, but our hearts want to so bad. Like our hearts are yearning. And when we go for something to heal and it doesn't happen, that can be one of the most heartbreaking things we can experience. Being numb and apathetic. I totally get why people do that because to actually go for what your heart wants and fails, is much more heartbreaking than just not trying. So I think we need to support each other in building capacities to know where we are, where I have a capacity for anger and judgment, which you've seen living with me, Tucker, where I can, I'm so distressed by all that's dying. I dump my distress onto you in a way of like, let's just go, let's go go right now. Let's go hunger strike in front of the huge industrial complex prison when i pressure you to do it again when you're above your capacity you're not helping collective liberation so my blind spot is i need to learn to have more compassion while i have the fire confidence for change so when we start doing this for each other we become what i love Thich Nhat Hanh, who has now passed away said the next buddha is going to be a collective it's not going to be an individual He's like we're all part-time buddhas so if Tucker, you and I, and a bunch of people went. Let's say we sign up to be peace shields for the war right now happening. And that's just to de escalate civilians being killed, mothers, children, people in the hospital. We can support each other because there might be a moment where, like, oh my gosh, Ethan, I'm so terrified they have guns pointed at us. And I've had doing acts against drones and stuff, I've had guns pointed at me. So that's a place where I'm like, I'm okay. So maybe you step behind me. And then there's another moment where I'm getting so furious. You step in and be like, Ethan, you put your hand on my heart and be like, I'll handle this situation. You know, like mm-hmm. we can take our giftedness. And when it's a collective, we become a superorganism. We fill in each other's weak points. But individualism has created the hero narrative. Which is so destructive because then we think it's up to us to be everything. And that's, that's a big problem. Thomas Merton has a quote that to want to save everyone and everything is to cooperate in violence mm. because we are limited entities. I'm a mammal. So I think we have to, we're, we have to be aware of all of these things that we, we actually can't. It, again, there's no collective liberation without community. So it's beautiful when a team can come together in our giftedness, in our brokenness, hold, hold it collectively. We have so much more capacity. It's not as overwhelming. We're holding hands no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. There's some close friends that I have and some people in my broader communities that have had experiences and collectives in the past that they might label as having cult-like dynamics, if not being full-on cults, or, um, you know, basically having collective trauma. And I'm curious how, yeah, how we, when I say we, I guess I mean um, Western socialized individuals that might not have as much experience with collectives outside of potentially harmful collective experiences and how people can begin to step into that sort of level of trust and collective, uh, like like it feels like if somatically in my body, there's a bit of a letting down of my own boundaries and guard in order to be held by more hands that are there to catch me and to guide me. And it's like a trust fall or a trust walk with a blindfold on of sorts. And that all requires a certain level of, um, yeah basic security and the people that you're around and not everyone potentially has that due to their life experiences if not intergenerational trauma etc so what what is your how do we how do we deal with the trauma that is preventing the collective healing of other types of trauma you know what i mean
0: yeah I, and again as i speak these are all guesses from what we've been leaning into with this work and there's an unending you know unending new iteration of the answers we experiment so we're just experimenting the possibility lines for 15 years now and just every year we are recreating our experiment because we're experimenting getting feedback learning and do another iteration experiment so right now which hopefully would change in five years, but my answer would be one. I find that the danger of the cult is an inward facing community. So if we have a community of people and you're in a circle, you're either facing inward towards each other. And often in a cult, there's someone wanting power in some form. That can be money. That can be power and a hierarchy in all kinds of ways. I think in an inward facing community, there's more of a chance of that kind of harm and manipulation. When we're in a circle and we're facing outward, we're still together, we're still community, but we're looking outward in a sense of who is there to serve, who might be more oppressed or needing more than we do. And I think that kind of purpose purpose and meaning can really help. This is one thing that when, for example, the superhero rides, there it was always an outward community. So we were biking to Hurricane Katrina to the Ninth Ward. And when we're actually faced with someone else suffering, everyone collectively is like, yeah, let's help rebuild these homes. You don't have to be convinced to do it or whatever. It's just, I feel like love, as I've said before, when exposed to suffering, if we're accessing our love, moves to heal the suffering because we're all connected, just like the law of heat moving to cold. So I think outward facing helps. Um, So I'd be suspicious of any circle that's like, no, don't leave, or you need to stay here. Also, if we take vocation, we realize my belief is we all have a unique gift to the world. And that when... Someone is trying to hold up their gift and shadow all the other gifts. That's another danger. Are people asking, what's your gift? What's your vocation? What's your vision? In 15 years, it's more of the leading conversation. The possibility lines now is what is it in you? I was just on a phone call with a young woman who visited here who is just asking that question. I just got out of high school. I have privilege. I, I, I see the world's falling apart. So again, When someone's asking, what is your power and beauty, instead of trying to be powerful and beautiful and have you feel, oh, I need that person because I'm missing this. I think that's another layer is the vocational. When we're all vocationally asking each other, what's our gift in this and and how do we bring it to the needs of the world? There's less likely to have those damaging psychic components and I think the third thing is when we are committed to somatics or trauma healing, um, we start to recognize when we have a traumatized part of our nervous system speaking or when we're open. Um, I find that in IFS, internal family systems trauma therapy, the first level of having more self energy, grounded nervous system energy in the self, is curiosity. I notice when I find people who become extremely dogmatic or controlling about religion or the way we need to do ritual or the way, whatever it is, this is the only way that curiosity is gone. Uh, I think early on in the possibility lines, when we had so much distress about the world, we had some of those tendencies like we have to not be in capitalism, we have to, you know, there was a more absolute. And the interesting thing, the more we do the experiment, the more complexity and paradox we're in. We're like, wow, mm-hmm. I don't know. The person who went really deep into capitalism and was like dot-com boom ended up creating one of the largest volunteer organizations because they went deep into what wasn't working, late-stage disaster capitalism. So the advice to you know not experience it wouldn't have been the best advice for Napoon Meta, someone who went into it and then... Uh, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly and created service space and all this beautiful gifting. So I'm realizing, I don't know. <laughs> like I know what's, you know, my best guess for myself, but you know, we have to have more listening and more dialogue. If dialogue isn't allowed or certain things can't be talked about, that's when we should realize we're getting into a potentially dangerous situation. Mm. Um Yeah, so I I, I also, I have lots of friends who are like, I'm never going to live in any intentional community I'm not going to be part of an activist collective because it is so painful when you enter in with a group that wants more beauty and more love, and then you experience harm. That harm can be sexual harm. That harm can be mental manipulation. That harm can be so many levels. And it's like a double wound or violation because you never expected the violation to happen in this group of people and I've heard that from a lot of people who go to the front lines and experience harm and it's so traumatizing because they didn't have those boundaries up so important to be aware and as you said at the beginning of the conversation i don't think it was recorded you say you know there's something value about long-term relationships like i i actually won't go into the front lines without a team that i have a long history with mm-hmm. they know my beauty and they know my shadow and i know theirs and i found that 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 trust adrian brown said yeah move at the speed of trust that i think we get into situations in in the new age it's like oh just go to this retreat here and you're meeting all new people you know you there's there's history is so important history and safety comes with history of knowing i'm going to belong when i go home to my hometown you're like oh, you're always going to your hometown I'm like yes all my buddies there know me since age 1 they know all my the time i broke into the police car they know all the times i messed up and so They hold me as a human, which is so relief. They don't hold me as like, you're the guy who dressed up as a superhero. You're the guy who gave away your inheritance. Yes, that's true, but it's mixed into their whole experience of Ethan, which is more true. They're not putting me on a pedestal, and they're not attacking me and trying to destroy me. So it's so wonderful to be in that balance when someone knows that you are human. (laughs) When I go home, they know my entire history, and it's one of the most satisfying experiences Cause they've seen me at my worst. I know it's 50 years of being friends with Tony Remington or Derek Gary. I know I'm getting tears in my eyes. Like I'm always going to belong. They've seen the worst. I whipped a beer can at Tony Remington's head, you know, and we're friends still, we love each other. And because if it's true, what people say that belonging is one of the most important things for us, to actually enter something for collective liberation and then have the feeling of being exiled is incredibly traumatic. Hmm. So that takes time. That takes, a, that takes so many of these pieces to actually build a collective that undoes the trauma on a personal level the interpersonal level, on the cultural level. And we have to we also paradoxically have to be patient. I, I see out of the communities, indigenous and black communities, so much writing and wisdom is coming out about how radical it is to rest and renew. They have time together. you And that's the leading edge of, of, you know, how do we do collective liberation? There's balance. We're responding to the emergency and staying grounded and connected. So I think in this moment we have to breathe a lot, listen a lot, and and expand our ability for complexity and paradox. Mm -hmm.
1: I don't know what to say. There's, I just feel, um, yeah, I'm so relaxed in my body hearing you speak, and also, uh, yeah, I feel a deep restfulness and a peace, and also a um, an aliveness and a clarity and sharpness, and. Maybe they feel like a paradox, but they also feel like they are more like an infinity loop that are helping to feed one another. Um, yeah, I think I uh, the only the only thought that's arising is like, what now? What next? Where do we go from here?
0: <laughs> I'm like, well... okay, sign me up, Ethan. I'm already signed up. <laughs> Renew my subscription. Well, that's the piece is that when we, you know, when we. What I tell people now, I mean, earlier on when someone said, oh, you did the superhero or whatever, there were places in me that just were so wounded from my history of getting 810 on my SAT and telling myself I'd never, you know, counselors saying you're never going to amount to anything and being out of juvie and getting arrested. Society was telling me I was a loser. So that trauma unhealed when I was being told I was actually a good person, there was a imbalance in me where I was like wanting to really like take that in. I am a good person. I am a superhero. That's part of the process. But then I realize, in the end, when someone says, Oh my gosh, you're just really compassionate. Or I see you helping people I'm like, yeah. And you're, you're resonating with what lives in you. You know, we do that for each other. We, we take turns reminding each other, we're remembering for each other and then all of a sudden we have less chance of the kind of power struggle or putting someone on a pedestal it's like wow you're helping me remember and there's so many times you've helped me remember when you have the courage to say Ethan it sounds like you're being judgmental about x and I really look at and I'd be like I am (laughs) you know like I kind of I I feel a lot of situations you're you're able to be with paradox more regularly than I am so we're again helping each other remember so how do we celebrate each other's gifts and realize we're infinite sacred beings of unlimited potential both of us you know Mm -hmm. and that's that's again the the balance of, of celebrating when someone does something that touches us deeply and the next step isn't to say, "Oh, I could never do that," or "Oh, why am I not as good as X?" The next step is to say, "Oh, that's so beautiful, and I want to do something like that. But I don't want to imitate X person. I want that beautiful expression of love as deeply sincere and authentic for who I am. And that's you know, the second step from when you're speaking is what's so beautiful. And then it comes to, I love Doris Lessing's quote, whatever you're meant to do, do it now. The conditions are always impossible. Mm. In a way, from our trauma and from our limited self, it always looks impossible. How do we help start a war? How do we help stop a war halfway across the world that's affecting us because we're interconnected? How do we stop 200 species from going extinct? How do I get over the fear so I can do what my heart wants in a way that doesn't overwhelm my nervous system? So whatever we are meant to do, do it now. The conditions are always impossible. I love it because from our limited perspective, it does seem impossible, but that means we still step forward into it and see what happens when we step. And we don't step alone. We Mm -hmm. step supported by people we trust that that kind of heartbreak can't happen What you're talking about your friends are like whoa another collective forget it i'm out of here it makes sense um and i think there's another important piece of this that we have past trauma from the generations that are in our body we have past trauma from past genocide and slavery all the things that happen on this continent we have present trauma from all these systems affecting us but then our, the future, again, seems inevitable. But it'll just be violence. But I love this quote from bell hooks. What we cannot imagine cannot come into being. But actually, if we don't use imagination, and also when we ground our nervous system, creativity comes up. There's another quote by David Murrah that says imagination is intervention an act of defiance. It alters belief. And I think we underestimate the power of imagining and then acting on that imagination. A new reality comes into being. When Peace Pilgrim, it, again, I, I probably use her in every interview, is uh, just such a humble, you know, she was... Tucker. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was just having my peace pilgrim moment and someone, we have a landline, someone tripped on the landline and pulled the connection out of the wall. Uh Oh, no worries. It was a great moment. It meant we needed to take a breath. Um, What I was talking about, this idea that imagination alters belief. And it's again, what we imagine. And then we act on it. If we don't act on it, it actually can be more harmful to imagine a more beautiful world because we don't act on it, it. It's, it's even harder for our heart to believe in. it. It's like, oh, you're just magical thinking again. I don't want to hear it at all. I have some people that react so strongly when someone shares their whole vision. Like, I don't want to hear it. I'm like, why? And when I get curious, it's because they're never going to take that step towards it. And so it's heartbreaking to even imagine. But if we imagine and act on it, like Peace Pilgrim it was just working behind a cash register, I think at a grocery store, and then had this vision of, I'm gonna walk and help anyone I see until there's peace on earth. So incredible peace builder. And what all of a sudden created this incredible field of change, creating a new future from the present was Peace Pilgrim started walking. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, she's sewn a little smock and she's now walking across North America and whoever she runs into, she's gonna try to offer whatever humble help she can she has no money. Uh, she has no food, she'll fed when she's fed, and everyone obviously in the beginning were like, Well, let's see what happens. This is extraordinary. Now, Peace Pilgrim was a human being taking an extraordinary action. And that's again not just with enemy identity. We have to be like you did a really destructive action, but you're still a human being. We have to do that in the reverse. You did an extraordinary action, but you're still a human being. Otherwise, we start to have people on a pedestal and all these dangers of of that. So, this pilgrim took an extraordinary action. And lo and behold, she walked across the country, not once, not twice, but six times, helping so many people and saying, I'm going to walk until there's world peace. Now, for a lot of people, the chance of world peace happening actually increased because a human being was walking and being fed and taken care of and transforming people who are in a lot of pain and doing remarkable things. If you ever read her book, which again, you can write to Peace Pilgrim, friends of Peace Pilgrim, and get the book for free. She never wrote a book. They just took together a li- She just trusted. And in the end, I see her book in libraries all around the world. And she never even tried to get a publisher. It just happened. A ripple from one person's life So yes, we can say peace program is not going to create world peace, but what if everyone supported each other and activated to that extraordinary way? We can guess that we'd be a lot closer to world peace overnight. Mm -hmm. And so then our question is, how do we start imagining healing the past, healing the present, regulating our nervous system? acting with each other in a beautiful way that has accountability and start positioning yourselves outward towards collective liberation and what needs to heal. All of a sudden something exciting starts happening and we're asking the vocation, if I just walk like peaceful groom, it's not going to have the same effect because it's not a natural uprising. I'm again, imitating instead of embodying what my destiny is. But my, I'm unique in all the universes, I like to say too, 14 billion years. Let's have a conversation, Tucker, you and I, and anyone listening to this conversation, go grab a friend and say, what am I meant to do with this one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver says? All of a sudden, that conversation, I think, is going to lead to something exciting. When, for example, if I say, oh, I'm going to, I want to actually Roll in a big purple ball across the country, (laughs) making sure anyone I meet is fed because we're in a, you know, we're in a housing crisis and we're in a hunger crisis. Okay, if I hear you say that, I want to start being like, okay, what kind of ball could it be? What kind of ball do you want to be in? That's like, oh, I want a latex ball because it's natural and I want to, you know, find the bike path loops. And so then all of a sudden we start working together. So it's not all you, but you have a team. I don't know what's going to happen. But anything that has the intention for healing or the intention to stop harm and that a collective of people are trying to do it in the most mindful way, I'm game for it. Let's try every – as long as we're checking to make sure we're doing it for those reasons, which are infinite ways to heal and infinite ways to stop harm. Yeah, we just start to – Support each other, and then you might say, I don't have any money. And I'm like, Oh, well, I know people 15,000 people have visited the Possible I can set you up with homes across the country. Oh, great. Here's my next challenge I'm scared. I'm scared shitless. Okay, great. Let's welcome the part. I love IFS because it's welcome all parts. You're not exiling the scared part or the judgmental part or the racist part, you're welcoming it so it can heal microaggressions happen and all these things because we are denying we are racist. Once we actually can claim that things can start to shift because then we're working with what is. So all of a sudden I'm working with your fear. And then, you know, we collectively get to see what this experiment happens when you roll on a purple ball and feed uh, anyone who's hungry. Great. When people aren't hungry, there's less ex. Escalation to violence. So we look at root causes of often violence happens when we are lacking a birthright need. Birthright meaning we all deserve to be fed and sheltered and housed, and so many of us aren't getting that birthright. So how do we imagine a future where we do, and take a step to live into it? Um, it sounds it can sound so simple, but it is incredibly complex because of these layers of domination and trauma that we have to navigate collectively, culturally, systemically, personally, and ancestrally going way back into the past. So, yeah, I just find that life is often when we're moving in that direction, we often find more connection, more excitement, more meaning, more healing. Cause we're, you know, if I push you like, just get in the ball, I don't care if you're afraid, that again starts to replay domination but if i say well let's sit with the fear so you're feeling the capacity to do it like the marathon we talked about hey people can train five hours a day for the olympics can we train five hours a day for collective liberation i think it's a good question
1: Mm. well when you put it that way Yeah. Huh? That's beautiful. So I just have a fun little it, syn- me- Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, you go ahead. I just have a, a little synchronicity. I was um thinking of a question that I wanted to ask about the use of the word trauma. And it was coming directly from a friend of mine and he made a video recently. And I'm I'm not gonna do a good job relaying his perspective. So I'll just kind of share my understanding of it. Um, but the funny part is I haven't talked to him in a couple of months and he just texted me uh, a moment ago when I was thinking of him and thinking of asking the question that is sort of inspired by him. So that just kind of shows, uh, you know, maybe some of the, the beautiful ways in which reality can unfold in different dimensions and our interconnectedness. Yeah. But his, que- my question is about the use of the word trauma and, um, and, uh, particularly what's, you know, I guess I'm relating to it in my own life, where in brief, you know, the makeup, uh, a story on the fly about my relationship with trauma. At first, I was in total denial that I had any trauma, not even denial, I just wasn't aware. And even though I was physically and emotionally and um, mentally sort of abusing my my past partner uh, of 10 years, I just, I just wasn't aware that those types of actions might even be coming from a place of trauma. And then she basically pointed that out to me. And then I read some articles and basically felt a lot of anger. And then I went into like a complete shame spiral and thought I was a horrible human being that should break up with my partner because she doesn't deserve someone like me. And then I started going to therapy and then, and so this whole kind of journey played out with trauma. And then I started seeing the trauma in all of the systems and in all of our societies and my educational upbringing and all that stuff in my family system, and then kind of projecting out a lot of the responsibility for my own trauma onto other people and places and then getting really angry and then wanting to sort of rebel against those systems and structures. And then seeing how I was just rebelling from my own internal parts and then kind of going inward and being more in a cocoon and doing more therapeutic work and more meditation and more um, plant medicine journeys and all that to kind of be with the, the inner trauma that I was also seeing replicated externally. And then there was a way in which I was holding both equally, but then there was a way in which I was trying to hold so much trauma, both collectively and personally, that I wasn't really doing anything other than, just being with my own trauma. And then it kind of got to this place where I was like, this feels like an endless ball of yarn that I could just, I could just keep doing uh, inner parts work. You could say, or it was much more than that, but just to simplify it for the rest of my lifetime and probably multiple lifetimes. And so at what point am I quote unquote healed enough to go out and start my next project or to go and do start a podcast with Ethan and, you know, not, worry so much that I might say something stupid that and then might be judged for it. And <laughs> yeah. So there's like this <clears throat> relationship with even just the word trauma and the concept of trauma and how that concept and that awareness was um, at times paralyzing me, at times liberating me, at times catalyzing my growth and development, at times stunting me and keeping me in sort of a, a small box And I imagine that all of that is playing out, you know, um, uh, societally as well and in our our various collectives. And so my question is just around, is there a time and a place when the word trauma itself maybe is, um, like, how can we attune to each individual in our community to kind of recognize where they might be on their own individual trauma healing journey? And to know when that word might be kind of triggering a sense of replaying a trauma paradoxically versus like actually helping to liberate and empower someone or to help somebody see a greater awareness that maybe they previously weren't able to hold.
0: That's a great question. Um, I think a few things that come up is trauma as it works in our nervous system is very natural. You know, in many various works, for example, like My Grandmother's Hands is a wonderful telling of trauma for Resmaa Metkin, and this idea that, yeah, so a million years ago, if I went up on a rock wall south-facing and got bit by a snake, a poisonous snake, my nervous system would remember that, and I would avoid the the wall next time. I have a memory, my nervous system that's, that's dangerous. And so in a sense, trauma, it's to be really precise that as I use that term, it's we get frozen mm. in the past, which sometimes can be very helpful. Because maybe the cliff isn't dangerous in the next day, but my nervous system is keeping me away so I don't die. So for example, if a dog bites me when I'm eight, for the rest of my life, I can think all dogs are dangerous because I'm, I am think I'm in the present moment, but I'm actually living on past information. So, you know, growing up, having fights and getting punched a lot. There are times when I was in college where I was literally, someone would swing around and I'd be like defending myself, waiting for a punch. Now, at that point, I'm having a trauma response because I'm taking a past experience in the present moment. We don't know what's happening in that present moment. So that's why distinction, like what's grief, what's trauma, trauma is a locked memory in our nervous system and mm-hmm. what happens when we heal that. And I think what led me to internal family systems is all parts are welcome. When that is the case, we're less likely to get in that loop because when we're fearful, that's welcome. Let's be curious. When we're judgmental, we're not exiling anything. And I think the danger of some of the unhealthy work is when we exile parts of ourselves try to get out of the loop instead of, oh, I feel like I'm in a loop. That's welcome too. Though there's an approach that I feel like is healing. I also like the internal family systems model because it states that even if you had a very healthy childhood and loving parents, we're all traumatized by a greater domination culture through these burdens in each culture of individualism, separation, materialism, all these things. So Once we can realize that our nervous system has been locked into a belief system that keeps us in the past and not in the present moment, then we can just say, how do we heal that? So maybe the next dog will bite me, maybe not. But let's be open to it because the next one may actually come up and cuddle and be a really wonderful experience. So we don't know what's going to happen next. So how to update our system so it can be in the present moment? How do we heal generational trauma, I think it's really important. Like I believe what I do in my body can heal what my dad experienced in Vietnam and help heal that that was passed to me. And then I'm not passing it to my children. We can see that with addiction and so many other things. And so I think holding that that it's a natural response in how do we now handle that to heal our nervous system in what can be an incredibly isolating system. Uh, capitalism that, hey, if I don't have money, I won't eat, I won't have shelter. That was rarely the case for millions of years. You're guaranteed a home and education in nature-based cultures. So yeah, we're not getting our birthright. So it is important. The other part is to realize we spontaneously unburden and heal trauma all the time. So trust your own self that for some people, meditation or walking in nature or doing service, helping people in your community There's an infinite way of how we heal and remember who we are. And so I think it's really important to trust your own intuition that, oh, I went and did a vision quest and it created more unsettling in my system. Maybe that's not the pathway that your system needs right now. Five years down the road, that might be great. So it's both, you know, again, being with good friends who can reflect and trusting our intuition I think often we just force ourselves into situations, again, over our capacity, which leads into the loops that you're talking about. So I think being curious and trusting what makes our body relax, and that could be just sitting and watching the leaves fall. or that. And if we get that experience, how do we then be like, I'm relaxed now. How do I give everyone this birthright? Who are the people not having a moment? because bombs are falling or because they're an industrial prison complex. So again, I think we have to hold complexity and paradox in the sense that I love that quote by Marsha Rosenberg, which I can use for trauma healing too. If I use nonviolent communication or trauma healing to liberate people to be less depressed, to get along better with their family, but do not teach them at the same time to use their energy to rapidly transform systems in the world parentheses, these systems that are re-traumatizing us. Then I am part of the problem. I'm essentially calming people down, making them happier to live in the systems as they are, parentheses, systems that aren't working and is killing everything. So I'm using nonviolent communication or trauma healing as a narcotic. So it's important to realize any tool can be used as addiction, a distraction, or to harm. So we We have to breathe in and come back to that simple piece of I want healing and I want to stop harm. Circle up and be creative. Ask about what our gifts are. What do we love to do? Let's experiment in moving that into the world. And when we're getting that feedback, like I wish I could have been there for you or other people when you're like, oh, I'm in the trauma loop. Everything's trauma. I'm a bad person. I shouldn't be with anyone. I should just climb in a hole. I want to make sure no one has to be alone in that. Mm -hmm. You know, how are we just not alone? Even in the grief circles, even being with people, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't feel normally when I grieve alone at the end of it, I feel totally overwhelmed and desperate. But when it's 10 people with me, I feel somehow comforted and at ease and peaceful. So I think that's another key piece is none of this, the trauma healing, the inner work, Buddha, the third jewel was the Sangha. Jesus, who was a radical brown liberating force from the Middle East against the Roman Empire, said when two or more are gathered, love will be there. So, you know, we see in our spiritual traditions and in our uh, liberation traditions, like the Black Freedom Movement, um, none of this should be done without community that has has the best intention for ourselves yeah so yeah yeah how to be together in a way that helps us be who we want to be and doesn't harm us and we have to as we do this work we're going to have to know our capacity and move away from certain relationships for now and move towards certain relationships with the knowing that we still hope there's healing Mm. when we're ready or when they're ready yeah, I, I, we can't put pressure on ourselves. We have to tap into that beauty, the, the vision, the belief, the imagination that activates us. Yeah. To catch when we're being like, oh, I just listened to this interview. I should do this. That's yeah. not the point of this conversation. It's to like start to be curious. And like, what does it? When, when do I feel alive? Am I carving something? Am I singing? Am I helping teaching a kid? Like getting back to that simple thing, which doesn't require any thinking. It's just, oh, I love when I'm in the water. My daughter loves when she's in water, salt water, fresh water. I'm like, oh, let's be curious about that. What can you do in the world where you're going to be in water a lot? And we're like, maybe you could take water samples to find out how to heal rivers that are polluted and you'll be in water all the time. you know? Like, And maybe that's not the strategy, but leading with, that simple thing, i love to be in water. Okay, how do we take that in a beautiful way that addresses one of the challenges in the world right now? If you love water, it has to be healthy water so you can swim in it. So again, it can become complex, but also so simple. Yeah. Um, and I think it was Einstein that said on the other side of complexity is simplicity, but we have to move through the complexity and paradox before we get that clarity yeah anyhow
1: yeah and for me one of the aspects of simplicity is is actually being able to be fully in the trauma so to speak but to be completely calm you know just to have this underlying ocean of peace and okayness and um a, even a completely calm nervous system, while there's a trauma activation simultaneously arising in the body, and it's it's like somehow the two don't need to negate one another. Now they can coexist simultaneously, and it's like I remember yeah. a couple months ago when I first got the boulder. I walked into a Target, you know, this Target store, and just like driving and the traffic, and then the big box store, and you walk in and all the artificial lighting, and it's just this feeling of like uh-huh. this whole. Thing is so insane, and there's so much <laughs> yeah. drama, I guess to use that word, to like kind of that's caused this and also perpetuating from this experience. And yet, it's also okay, and it's also like weirdly beautiful on some level, and it's also an emanation of God. And to hold both completely simultaneously and to see them as not even yeah. separate, but they both reinforce each other, like seeing the target experience as God made me also see that the trauma is all the more sacred to be with fully and to not deny or repress or um, push away, but like to hold that even more closely as a part of the beautiful gift of this moment as I get to experience it and knowing that like this is my this is what my soul signed up for is to be at this weird paradox of having experienced so many aspects of beautiful collective community living and nature-based regenerative communities and healing and all of this and also to walk into a target superstore and to feel sort of just like the impossibility of this moment in human history that we're in and like they're just all co-arising simultaneously and somehow that's okay and it's not okay at the same time
0: yeah and it's very par- paradoxical. I know people that had their experience of experiencing of the most kindness and care for them at a truck stop and in a Walmart. And so that's where we talk about the personal, the interpersonal, and the collectives, like we're beautiful, sacred beings in a, in a lot of the system, which is, is broken. Meaning when I ask someone, if you could get all your needs met without hurting cultures or ecosystems, would you? Everyone I know from any political background, my friends who are working class fishermen would say yes. I mean, if I could wave a wand, but again, because it's so complex, they feel like it's not possible. So that's where, again, how do we start creating an imagination and moving towards it with each step within our capacity? But yeah, it is that that way. We just have to realize this is what is and how do we move towards a life where we can live in full joy without everything going extinct or people being locked up in huge profit-driven prisons. And I, my heart's so committed to it, I have to both imagine and step towards it and also be with what is. Um, and yeah, as you said, is how do we Whatever comes up in our system is important. Like our nervous system knows what layer needs to come up next, and so how do we find the support we need to regulate in the community? And it's yeah. So we're we're trying to create access with that right now. Is just getting as many people these tools, and we're about to hop on a train and do a training out in Denver. Um, and just being in the room, asking the question. <laughs> this is again facing. Huge loss requires incredible courage to face that grief and also keep moving and claiming joy and awe is also part of collective liberation. Things left out. Yeah. I just wanted Thanks to so much, Tucker.
1: Yeah. Can Please. I end sharing one story that I heard um from Israel Palestine a couple of days ago on a on a news clip?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: A I great way to see end see it, the story in that. Yeah, I see the story there's a way in which it might sound like a some sort of a hopeful ending of some you know positive moment of human connection, but I also I say it cuz it it's it, the story horrifies me and it haunts me about oh. the complexity of the and, and the simplicity of the human experience and so When the Hamas, some of the Hamas fighters were at a kibbutz in Israel, um, they were in a particular house and killed some of the family members. And then there was um, a grandma and a grandpa that were left and they were about to kill them. And one of the neighbors, the, the kibbutz neighbors, came over with a plate of chicken and rice. And the Hamas fighters kind of put down their guns for a bit and started eating. And then they... Um the the grandma and the grandpa brought in a uh, a Coke Zero. And they said, do you have any diet Cokes? We prefer diet Coke. And they said, I'm sorry, we just have Coke Zero. And so they started drinking the Cokes and eating the chicken and the rice. And then the Hamas fighters asked the, the grandma and the grandpa, they said, do you know this Israeli pop star? And they said, yeah. And then they all just started singing this Israeli pop song together and just having this Moment of human connection while their dead relatives were on the other side of the room and the, they finished eating and drinking the cokes and then ended up leaving and not killing the two people um that brought them the food and the drinks and kind of just moving on and going about their day probably killing more people after that and yeah it's just when i heard that i just um yeah It's just utterly devastating and somehow hopeful and somehow exhaustingly heartbreaking all at the same time.
0: Everything. Yeah, how do we help each other remember and the forgetting that we humanize someone so much that we can kill them? Often in these power plays of countries, again, it's the families and citizens that receive the violence. We actually imagine the citizens and the common people leading something more just and beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that. And we take the
1: next step yeah may we take the next step maybe so thank you yeah e.
0: thank, thanks so much tucker look forward to seeing you in a week. yeah look
1: forward to breaking bread with you and um yeah <laughs> i appreciate these conversations and for the listeners it's been several months um so hopefully there will be more when the time is right and appreciate everyone's patience and trust. And uh, hopefully this can be like a nice gift that gets dropped into people's uh, awarenesses and hearts.
0: Yeah. Thanks so Mm -hmm. much for doing it, Tucker. And I'll see you soon. All
1: right. Take
0: lots of love. You too, bye-bye. Bye, Bye, Tucker.
1: If you'd like to contact Ethan, can be reached at 207-338-5719. That's 207-338-5719. The Possibility Alliance mailing address is also available in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Have a beautiful day.